I know I'm a bit repetitive, Sam. I know I do talk about shipwrecks quite a bit, and I do talk about survival stories quite a bit, but I'm not going to apologise for it because they're <laughs> fucking fun. They are they? fun. I've got no problem with you enjoying talking about groups of men stranded for months on end and Suffering. their desperate struggle for survival and what they get up yeah. to. And Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's revelling in other people's discomfort and agony. So they're not really survival stories now that I think about it. They're more stories of three people surviving and the other 52 dying. G'day, Tom. G'day, Sam. Nice to meet you, mate. How are you doing, Bruce? Oh, very nice. I like the Australian accent. Me too. It's a shame about the person it's attached to. Hello, by the way, to our 33 <laughs> Australian listeners. <laughs> We've been quite harsh to Australians with these pod- through these podcasts, haven't we? We've been a little bit nasty. Well, we have. I like Aussies. I like Aussies too. You know what they say? One man's criminal outcast is another's top bloke, Tom. That's what they say. Top bloke. Top bloke. <laughs> Excellent. So, hello and welcome to all of our new and old listeners. We've got quite a lot of new listeners. We've had a, a really good couple of weeks for new people joining us. So, hello and welcome to That Was Genius. Very exciting. Very exciting. We are a little history podcast with a Laura Laura love to give, in which Tom, who is the other gentleman in New Zealand... Hello, hello. Hello. That's him and me, Sam, record on different sides... There, words. There, 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 there. Talk about... <laughs> I'll get there in the end. Talk about a history story on a topic each week. Was that your drunk Australian impression? <laughs> <laughs> I've had too many Castle Mine Forexes, mate. <laughs> I'm really struggling to get out my words. <laughs> no, my drunk Australian is just my normal Australian. <laughs> Driving, going to work, doing the normal thing. Just five tinnies down. <laughs> five tinnies? What are you, five years old? <laughs> But yes, every week Tom and I discuss history stories on a theme. The theme is decided the week beforehand, but everything else is a surprise. And you may have been able to tell that this week's theme is Australia. Oh shit, Australia. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Shit. I've been practising my Indian accent all week. (laughs) That's alright, because I've been doing my Canadian accent. (laughs) (laughs) United Nations of podcast. Absolutely, the Commonwealth. So how have you found this week, Tom? Very, very good. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you, Sam. I really thoroughly enjoy researching this podcast. There have been very few weeks. In fact, I can't think of a week that I haven't actually had fun doing the research. And this week has been no exception. I've had really good fun researching this topic. Good. Very, very good. How about you? Yeah, I've managed to get something off my chest that I've wanted to do since our episode on journeys, which I think was like episode five, maybe? A long time ago in Bethlehem. A long time ago. It is itself history, that episode. Yes. But I'm really glad now that I get to talk about it today. What, the podcast? Are you, are you not actually... Have you chosen a podcast as your topic for this week? I have. I'm recapping our episode on journeys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we're getting to do Australians, because or Australia, because it's cropped up a few times already, hasn't it, in various places. We've had Dick Richards... Yep. Top bloke. Top bloke. Top bloke Dick Richards. And we've made passing slightly racist references on, on many occasions. We've had the Gilt Dragon as well. We have. We've had the Gilt Dragon. Oh, bloody hell. Oh, oh no. I'm shipwrecked oh, no. in Australia. Oh, go. Oh, oh. What have I done? Oh, so, I, feel so, I feel awful. The Gilt Dragon, by the way, is a ship that was featured in one of our episodes, just for a little bit of context. <laughs> Which, of course, is in fact a guilty dragon. <laughs> yeah, the joke was it was a guilty dragon, just for those of you who haven't heard that podcast. Oh, shit, I burnt down a village. Oh, no. Don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, shit, 
it landed on the coast of Australia and spreading communicable diseases amongst the population who have absolutely no natural resistance to them. Oh, shit. Not again. Oh, no. Decimated the domestic population. Not the cholera. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I think we should get into it, shouldn't we, Tom? Go for it, yes. Let's take a leaf out of other podcasts' books and actually get on with doing a podcast today. That's radical. Isn't it just? Right, what are we going to (laughs) flip? I just picked up the thing closest to me made of paper that I've not flipped before. And were you quite surprised? Were you surprised by what it was? Yeah, yeah, I picked it up and turned it over. (laughs) um, Was it a big pair of boobs? Have you been printing off naughty pictures? No, it's almost worse, Tom, and I might have to pick something else and edit this out. It's not a photocopy of your arse, is it? No, (laughs) well, closer than you might think. Today, Tom, we will be flipping the NHS guide to having a colonoscopy. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. Excellent. Right. Oh, opening it up. There's a lovely diagram of how my digestive system works. Anyway, is this suitable for flipping, Tom? You flip it, Sam. Right. We've already described it, so if it isn't suitable, (laughs) we're kind of in too deep, for want of a better phrase. Indeed. Would you like the the front cover, which has a picture of, I think she's supposed to be smiling, but is in fact slightly grimacing nurse? I'll have the rear, please. (laughs) You'll have the rear. (laughs) Excellent. The rear, which has... <laughs> yes, just some other stuff on it. Okay, we're flipping... We're, f- <laughs> we're flipping the guide. How did it go, by the way, Sam? How did you colo... You colo- what's, what's it called? Colo- co- God, that's a mouthful. What's the operation called? <laughs> yeah, I hope it's not a bloody mouthful. <laughs> if it is... Just the- can't get my tongue around it, Sam. It just can't get my tongue around it. <laughs> if it is, they're going the long way round. <laughs> Oh, this is wonderful for all our new listeners, isn't it? It's not usually this medical. It got cancelled at the last minute. The doctor didn't turn up. (laughs) The doctor did turn up, fair enough. (laughs) Right, so you're taking the front cover. Uh, Oh, no, you're taking the back. I'm taking the back. back. Okay, here we go. It's landed on the front, Tom. Excellent. What a way to start the podcast. (laughs) I'm going to let you go first. Excellent way to start the podcast. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the wreck of the Sydney Cove in 1796, Sam. That's what I've oh. cho- I've chosen for our Australia week. The, the boat itself is called the Sydney Cove, so it didn't actually wreck in a cove called Sydney Cove. That would have been ironic. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? That would have been a coincidence. So it was called the Sydney Cove because it was a boat that was destined from Calcutta to Sydney or Port Jackson, depends on, you know, I think my understanding is Port Jackson is the harbour at Sydney, so it's basically Sydney. So it's this shipwreck and the subsequent adventures of all of those on board the ship. And um, it's a fantastic story. I know I'm a bit repetitive, Sam. I know I do talk about shipwrecks quite a bit and I do talk about survival stories quite a bit. But I'm not going to apologise for it because they're <laughs> fucking fun. They are they? fun. I've got no problem with you enjoying talking about groups of men stranded for months on end and Suffering. their desperate struggle for survival and what they get up yep. to. And Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's revelling in other people's discomfort and agony. That's basically what I've done. <laughs> and um, enjoying high fatality rates with, the, with these survival stories as Good. well. So they're not really survival stories now <laughs> that I think about it. They're more stories of three people surviving and the other 52 dying. <laughs> but we'll, we'll come on to that. And I came across a fantastic selection of sources, really, 
called The Narrative of the Shipwreck of Captain Hamilton and the Crew of the Sydney Cove from 1797 to 8, which was in a newspaper called The Asiatic Mirror, which was in Calcutta and, and ran for a couple of decades at the end of the end of the 1700s, start of the 1800s. A really, really, really good document and very enjoyable to read. So, as mentioned, the Sydney Cove set sail from Calcutta to Port Jackson in November of 1796. The boat and its cargo were owned by a private trading company, and they were basically just trying to make a bit of money by shipping some alcohol and some other stuff to this new settlement of Sydney in a very unknown continent of Australia. That was great foresight of them, though, wasn't it? Thinking that the Australians might like a tipple. Yeah, absolutely. They might like a bit. Yeah, just, <laughs> it was just rows and rows and rows of Castlemaine. <laughs> <laughs> just lots and lots of lager. They just wrote in giant letters across the harbour of Sydney. Send... Beer. <laughs> so, what would they have talked to like in, in 1797? What would have Australian sounded like? Cockneys. And that, it's Cockneys, yeah. isn't it? It is. It's Cockneys. All right, Miss Farrah. Oh, Edge, yeah, got any, uh, got any old uh, beer of you, mate? Yeah, all right. Oh, geezer, it's a kangaroo. <laughs> Punch it. <laughs> Give it a slap. Slap that slag kangaroo. You slag of a kangaroo. So it sets sail in November. And quite quickly, things get a little bit unpleasant. So December, the boat experiences severe gales and very heavy winds en route to Australia. And the weather remains pretty bad until mid-January, with only a few periods of easier weather. And by mid-January, and this would be 1797, a leak in the boat has developed and is leaking about six to eight inches per hour, according to the sources. So That's quite leaky. Yeah, well, it gets leakier, Sam. I mean, (laughs) it does get leakier. The title, The Shipwreck of the Sydney Cove, would suggest that it does. (laughs) Yes, it doesn't get any better. So Captain Hamilton who's obviously captain of the ship, decides to fother with a thrummed sail. Sam, do you know what fothering with a thrummed sail is? And it's not (laughs) masturbating before you said yes. (laughs) Oh, we've been doing this too long. You can read me like a book. (laughs) Gets lonely out on sea, doesn't it? It gets lonely. It certainly does. Six to eight inches an hour, Tom, I hear. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) I believe uh, no. fothering with a thrum sail is sailing, actually sl- is sailing across the wind with your sail half down. Is that right? Or <laughs> That also sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything involving sailing and ships sounds like a euphemism. Oh, anything. Oh, sailing across wind with, you, with your sail halfway down, are you, sir? <laughs> oh, oh, I say. Flying half mast, oh. are we, sir? Oh, oh. <laughs> suits you, sir. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, any career in which the title of the main job is seaman. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of seamen in this story as well. You're wrong, Sam, but thank Good. you for your attempt. This, I was really, this I thought was very, very interesting. So, fothering is the act of wrapping a sail around the underside of a boat where a leak is present in the hope that it will stop the leak. Oh. And thrumming is basically taking your sail and turning it into a, a thick mat by sewing into it some rope. So you basically create a thick mat out of a sail and small bits of rope and you try and wrap it around the bottom of the ship where the hole is. Interesting. Quite a common solution to, to small leaks on a boat, apparently. Oh. Which I thought was fascinating. That is fascinating. And it's reasonably successful on this first occasion because the leak reduces to four to six inches per hour. So it gets a lot less. In late January... The ship hits yet more gales and the masts are damaged and the leak worsens. 
and the crew by this point are finding it really quite hard so a lot of the men on the boat were were Bengali men called Lazkars and they were very very cold they were not enjoying the weather very very cold (laughs) and they just they, they couldn't actually operate the pumps on deck these Lazkars were really really struggling with the conditions so instead, the captain tells them to get under the boat and start bailing manually with buckets, and they're quite happy to do that because they're sheltered from the rain a bit more and a bit warmer. But it is hard work by the sounds of it. I mean, this is very early on in my story of this shipwreck. In fact, it hasn't even shipwrecked yet, and we've already got three men dying from exhaustion just trying to bail the ship out. Bloody hell. So it's presumably dying from exhaustion and just exposure to the elements, but far out. This is, yeah, quite early on. Absolutely. I mean, even the reduced four to six inches of water across the length of a ship in an hour. It's quite a lot of water. You're sort of highlighting one of the reasons why this has been such an interesting thing to research because the the account of the ship going down is pretty detailed. It's fantastic to hear what happens when these boats get a leak and start to go down. It gets a lot worse. So there's a small improvement in the weather. So another sail is thrummed and fothered and this reduces the leak from about 11 to 12 inches to eight inches per hour, but it's getting worse. Early February, they hit another storm and there is another leak. Uh, This time it becomes too serious, so they don't anticipate being able to continue sailing. So the ship turns and just aims for land because they're south of Australia. So they they know that the continent is nearby. They've just got to head towards it. And it's taken on water at a horrible rate at this point. And much of the cargo gets thrown overboard. So the the stuff that they don't think they're going to need when they land is thrown overboard. And the water gets up to the low deck hatches. Wow. This ship must have been pretty much underwater at this point. But they're still trying yeah. to sail it. It's like that bit in Pirates of the Caribbean where Jack Sparrow arrives just clinging to a, a mast above the waterline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's exactly what... Yeah, that's absolutely it. And when it gets to this point, they do spot land, but they, it looks like there are some very rocky cliffs. So they don't fancy their chances trying to take the boat in too close. So they sleep on it. Well, they probably don't sleep on it. They probably spend the night panicking. They wait until the morning and then they do find a better place to, to approach shore. And they basically just drive the boat. By this point, it sounds like it's incredibly difficult to manoeuvre. Uh, they just drive it onto a sandbank and then they use what's called a long boat, which is basically a life raft. They use a long boat to get everyone to land and as much of the supplies as they can. And where they land is Preservation Island, which is an island in the, in the Ferno group of islands between Tasmania and Southeast Australia. And I, I may have pronounced Fernow, Ferno wrong. And they get ashore and they start digging a well. They find some, some water, which they say is a bit brackish. And then they begin to equip the longboat very, very quickly for a journey to the nearest settlement, which is Sydney. A mere, I think, what, what was it? 650 kilometres away, Sam. So not oh, far. Oh, just a potter. Yeah, just a, just a gentle potter. A lovely little rowing boat trip. Very pleasant. And we know how enjoyable the coastline of Australia is with all of its blue bottles, sharks poisonous frogs are you suggesting tom in some way that man eating sea snails <laughs> um, krakens uh, yeah, yeah. dragons so, yeah just lots of really unpleasant things in australia so captain hamilton remains with the crew on this island and i think that was standard practice at this point in history so the captain would stay with the main party and would send off, off other people to, to look for help so he sends off a chap called hugh thompson and William Clark, and they take 15 men with them, mostly Lascars, so mostly these Bengali men on board. 
And the men who remain have very little food. They've got this source of water, this well they've dug, and they've got one teacup of rice per day. That's pretty much what they survive on, one teacup per day. Jesus. So the party split. Well, I'll, I'll quickly go on to describe what goes on on this island, so what happens in the coming months, and then I'll explain the more enjoyable bit, which is the journey in this longboat to get to Sydney. So the men that are left on this island, they make tents out of the sails, but the island is very, very exposed and the strong winds soon blow this down. So they basically, from the end of February to the start of June, so three months, these men basically live a miserable existence with no shelter on a very, very exposed island. In June, they do spot a longboat that's out looking for them, but then that longboat disappears. The men decide, fuck, we are not losing this opportunity to be saved. So they light (laughs) fires and do everything they can to attract attention and fortunately there's a schooner just round the corner and that's the schooner that had sent the longboat to explore all these little islands is it schooner or schooner doesn't really matter but sorry it is a schooner my apologies i was mispronouncing my writing so this schooner comes into view and it sends out what are called jolly boats have you heard of jolly boats this is another thing i found out this week from the sounds of it because they're something based at sea i suspect there's nothing fun about them no i don't think they're that jolly i don't know why they're called jolly boats but they're, they're just small rowing boats that we use to get people on and off the boat so they send a few jolly boats ashore they fetch the men they gather as much of the of the cargo as they can and a few men are left behind to man the cargo that couldn't fit on the boat so 15 days later these men arrive in port jackson and um, another boat is sent out to to collect the remaining people i actually think there are two boats sent out and i think one of those boats goes missing so i think the second boat that goes to collect the additional men actually just disappears from the records and we don't know what happened to it presumably it was wrecked yeah this also seems to be a recurring theme in all our stories in this podcast that involve shipwrecks is that other ships go out and other ships are wrecked looking for them yeah absolutely yeah 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 definitely it's almost like a pyramid scheme of shipwrecks it's like multi-level marketing of shipwrecks (laughs) (laughs) who's gaining from this i'm trying to think (laughs) davy jones I was about to say Poseidon. Yes. You're right, it is a recurring theme, but it just highlights how dangerous this pastime is, trying to make money out of trading over long distances via via the seas. I mean, you know the story of press ganging, don't you? You know what press ganging is. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I'm not surprised that the press ganging, which for anyone who doesn't know, by the way, what they used to do, particularly in the UK, but it happened in other places as well, was they were so short of people who were willing to be seamen and willing to go out on these boats and inevitably get shipwrecked and die of scurvy was they used to go into a pub, wait until someone was drunk, these naval officers, knock them out, drag them onto the ship, and they'd wake up in the morning sailing halfway around the coast. (laughs) (laughs) Ha-ha! Got ya! And that was your life for the next 15 years. I don't think these Lascars, these Bengali men, would have had much choice either. So, meanwhile, the longboat is sent for help. And that longboat, talking of wrecks, is wrecked within days. The longboat is wrecked on what we think is 90 Mile Beach on the Australian mainland. And bearing in mind they had 650 kilometres to get to Sydney, the the nearest western settlement, (laughs) within two days they're fucked. (laughs) They've lost their main form of transport. 640 to go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, chin up boys, chin up. Here is an excellent quote. Imagination cannot picture a situation more melancholy than that to which the unfortunate crew was reduced. Wrecked a second time on the inhospitable shore of New South Wales, cut off from all hopes of rejoining their companions without provisions, without arms, or any probable means either of subsistence or defence. 
they seem doomed to all the horrors of lingering death with all their misfortunes unknown and unpitied. In this trying situation, they did not abandon themselves to despair. They determined to proceed to the northward in the hopes of reaching Port Jackson, although the distance of the settlement, the infrequent deserts they were to traverse, and the barbarous hordes among whom they had to gain their way presented difficulties that required no ordinary share of fortitude to encounter and perseverance to overcome. A great quote. It just sums it up beautifully. Better than I ever could. <laughs> In short, they were fucked. If the disease doesn't get you, the miles will get you. If the miles don't get you, the aboriginals will get you. If the aboriginals don't get you, the starvation will get you. If the starvation doesn't get you, literally everything else in Australia will try. Sam, have you researched this story as well? Because that was remarkably <laughs> accurate. Have you been cheating? I have not been cheating. Good. I've just heard a little bit about Australia here and there. <laughs> yeah. You have summed up basically what happened. Uh, so we have, we have Mr. Clark's journal. So we said that William Clark was one of the leaders of this group who were going to find salvation, trying to save the rest of the members of the shipwreck. It's a fantastic journal. And it is historically very, very significant because it describes in quite a lot of detail Aboriginal cultures of Australia. And this is one of the first times that, that Westerners had actually experienced Aborigines in this stretch of coastline. In fact, no Westerner had set, had set foot on this coastline, as far as we know. So, really, really interesting document. So, 18th of March, they encounter 14 Aboriginal Australians who are completely starkers. And we have a funny little incident. So, these Aboriginals clearly did not understand what clothing was because they were just captivated by what the shipwrecked sailors were wearing. They actually thought that the clothing they were wearing was part of their body, that it was part of the human body. Here's a quote. The natives on this part of the coast appear strong and muscular, with heads rather large in proportion to their bodies. Their flat nose, the broad, thick lips, which distinguish the African, also prevail amongst the people on this coast. Their hair is long and straight, but they are wholly inattentive to it, either as to cleanliness or in any other respect. It serves them in lieu of a towel to wipe their hands as often as they are daubed with blubber or shark oil, which is their principal article of food. The frequent application of rancid grease to the heads and bodies renders their approach exceedingly offensive. Their ornaments, consisting chiefly of fish bones or kangaroo teeth, fastened with gum or glue to the hair of the temples on the forehead. Upon the whole, they present the most hideous and disgusting figures that savage life can possibly afford. Sets the tone Charming. nicely for the next 200 <laughs> years of Western <laughs> interactions with Aboriginal Australians, doesn't it? Oh, doesn't it just? So there you go. So it's not a particularly positive or racially accepting... As opposed to the flowery, perfumed, hygienic joy that is 15 shipwrecked sailors. <laughs> yeah, who've been busy bloody fothering their uh <laughs> yeah that's exactly what i thought very 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 hypocritical to be judging the cleanliness of the natives of the australian continent when they've just been on a massive journey anyway 21st of march they see some more aboriginals but they observe that they still haven't seen any females or children uh, there are lots and lots of river crossings on this journey 29th of march they go across a river and they encounter some more natives who they placate with strips of cloth. And this is a recurring theme. And they see their wives and children. We get another lovely flattering quote. <laughs> the children were all really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> the men did not think proper to admit of our coming sufficiently near to have full or perfect view of their ladies. But we were near enough to discern that they were the most wretched objects we had ever seen. <laughs> Equally filthy as the men, coarse and ill-featured and so devoid of delicacy or any appearance of it that they seem to have nothing even human about them but the form. 
Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> so, On behalf of white people, sorry. Yeah. You've got a lot more to apologise for if we're going to go down <laughs> that route. But it's, it, they are really interested interactions with these Aboriginal Australians. 30th of March, some of the natives follow them and actually start to help them over some of the rivers some of the sailors 2nd of April they bump into some more Aboriginals sorry Aboriginal Australians I should be I think calling them Aborigines is deemed politically incorrect at the moment and insensitive so Aboriginal Australians they bump into some more Aboriginal Australians uh, from before and they sit down they have a nice meal of shellfish they're actually uh, a nice bunch of Aboriginal Australians who start to help them out very generous considering all the horrible things they've been saying about them <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah I don't think the Aboriginals spoke spoke English or Bengali <laughs> <laughs> So probably didn't understand. The 5th of April, they catch a shark four feet long, they say. So sounds like a nice meal. Here we go. 8th of April, they encounter 50 armed native men. And again, they have to placate them with cloth. So it seems to be that cloth is very uh, interesting to these native Australians. And the next day, the men become very aggressive. And so the sailors then target the older men in the group, assuming that they're sort of chieftains. Again, give them gifts in the hope that they'll calm down. And in return, they get some kangaroo tail, which they decide they're going to make into a soup the next day. The sailors are trying to avoid fights with with the Australians, and that's because they've got a couple of guns, pistols, swords. They even find some clubs that they carry with them. But the pistols don't work. They know the gun isn't going to work either, So, and they're outnumbered. So they're desperately trying to avoid any sort of confrontations. 11th of April, they encounter more Aboriginal Australians, and they're invited home for a meal of mussels. And apparently these Aboriginal Australians were at war with the group that we've... Just mentioned the 50 or so that were very aggressive so we're starting to see tribal groupings here as well we're starting to starting to see where the boundaries were interesting yeah absolutely lots of evidence of how different groups were were more accommodating some were far more aggressive and there were clear boundaries as well and i did a bit of research on aboriginal australia and when the westerners arrived there were something like 200 languages and almost the same number of tribes so it was a very very diverse sort of country at the, yeah before absolutely Europeans arrived absolutely and they're about a third of a million, I think, is the most accurate estimate, although some people have estimated up towards a million, but about a third of a million Australians, so Aboriginals. So that's quite a large number as well, isn't it? Considering how long it took for, for example, the Western, inverted commas, population of Australia to reach a million. It's, yes. quite, it's quite a populous place, all things considered. And it sounds that way when we go through this journal. So they're encountering Aboriginal Australians a lot. Almost daily, they're yeah. encountering them. So there are clearly a lot of people on the continent. Just an interesting fact, the Australian Aboriginals were also living in the same areas as uh, modern Australians. So the, <laughs> the population distribution was almost exactly the same as it is now. Obviously not as many, but very similar population distribution. 13th of April, more Aboriginals help them cross a river on these big bark boats, which are very difficult to handle, and the, and the sailors almost fall in a couple of times. 16th of April, nine men get left behind because they're too tired to carry on. 20th of April, they're helped again. 21st, they're given some fish by another tribesman. 26th of April, they encounter more aggressive natives and some of the travellers are wounded. And then in mid-May, they finally get spotted um, by a fishing boat and they get rescued. So they're actually not too far away from Port Jackson at this point. Only three of the men survived. William Clark, a chap called Bennett and one of the Lascars survive. Jesus. In this journal, I know, it's interesting, I think this newspaper has selected journal entries, and I don't think it's given a fully comprehensive view of what, what went on, but I suspect a number of them were murdered, reading between the lines, by Australians, and yeah, I, I think potentially many others just died from eating the wrong thing. Yeah. This is a completely different continent, and I think the sailors weren't quite sure what they should and shouldn't eat, which is again where the Aboriginals came in very useful. 
So they get picked up by this fishing boat, uh, pretty much crawling along a beach, apparently. They travelled 740 kilometres. And when was that? That's mid-May. Started out in March. That sounds pretty good going, really. Yeah, two months of solid walking. They looked like they were walking between sort of six to ten miles a day. They were really going hard. Fair play. Three made it. How many set off? 17 of them set off and only three of them survived. Around the same time, after presumably after word had got out that there had been this shipwreck, a whale boat attempted to get to the wreck, basically to pinch some of the provisions. <laughs> Good old whalers. Yeah, yeah. And the crew on this boat encounter a group of escaped convicts who who'd managed to get stuck on an island nearby in an attempt to get to this shipwreck to try and refloat it to escape. So that's also, I thought, a really interesting insight. There are escaped groups of escaped convicts going rogue and obviously encountering all these Aboriginal groups as well. So actually the place is crawling with Westerners trying to hide from each other or steal from each other, just kind of missing each other just about. Yeah, yeah, it really is fascinating. What I'm kind of surprised by is that news of this shipwreck managed to get out because... Obviously, it took a while for anyone to arrive to help, but it managed to get out to the extent that a load of convicts were able to escape, somehow get halfway down the coast. Yeah, absolutely. They must. Have, that's, that it's a fairly good point. Yeah, it's a it's a really really good point. They must have had a good knowledge of the coastline. Yeah, to know where to go and to know there was a shipwreck in the first place. But I do like the fact that the whalers just went out to nick everything. Good to know that whalers were still bastards. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a new thing that we consider whaling to be kind of a bit underhanded and a bit dirty. <laughs> no, they were off to try and get all the beer. Interestingly, there's a, a museum in, in Launceston in Australia with the world's oldest bottle of beer from the ship because the ship was rediscovered in the 70s. Ah. There you go. And there was still beer on board. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, still beer on board. Was it drinkable? <laughs> Someone will have tried it. Someone will have tried it. And I think I read they'd opened one of the bottles and someone had managed to take a sample of the yeast from it and brewed the beer. Do you know what? I've got a vague recollection of this, actually. Someone's reconstituted some ancient beer using hops from a shipwreck. Yeah, I think I read that that had taken place on on this occasion as well. That is the, the shipwreck of the Sydney Cove and the subsequent survival story with lots of great interactions with the Aboriginal Australians. Oh, wonderful. The aggressive ones and the less aggressive ones. I like the um, idea of 50 Aboriginal Australians on the crest of a hill, a bit like British football hooligans, just yelling abuse. <laughs> <laughs> Come over here, you multicoloured bastards. Let's see Ooh. what you got. <laughs> Are you wearing your fucking clothes? You're too fucking good for you, is it, eh? And the fun thing is, from this impression, it sounds very much like these Aboriginal Australians learned English from the convicts who'd escaped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just, just 50 stark naked Aboriginal Australian Millwall fans just stood at the top <laughs> hurling bottles. You're going over <laughs> the big white ambulance. You're going over <laughs> the big white ambulance. The referee's a wanker. <laughs> Who's your captain? <laughs> uh, your shitter. <laughs> your shits, and you know you are your shits. <laughs> Go on, fuck off along the coast. See how long you survive, you bunch of twats. Uh, you don't know. You know nothing about our country. <laughs> Fucking coming here and stealing our fish. Eating our muscles. I find you in our manor again. <laughs> SW Australia 6, mate. SW Australia 6. <laughs> Little hand gestures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talking of aggressive Chav Sam, mm. I've been encountering some stuff that's quite funny recently. For some reason on social media, so on Facebook and YouTube, I keep getting suggestions 
to watch videos about Irish traveller bare-knuckle boxing. <laughs> Perhaps you should um, stop Googling Irish traveller bare-knuckle boxing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what oh, I did do, didn't I? And I'm actually quite pleased I'm getting these suggestions because I've watched a few and they're incredibly entertaining. Have you ever watched them? No, I haven't. But now that my microphone has picked up me saying Irish bare-knuckle boxing... I wouldn't be surprised if Facebook's going to be advertising it to me within <laughs> yeah. minutes. You know what? I, I watched one the other day, which I just thought was hilarious. The fight in itself isn't that entertaining. There's a couple of rather large Irish travellers with haircuts straight out of a 90s Irish boy band trying try to smack each other in the face. It's the noises coming from the audience that is so funny. And I heard one, and all you can hear is, All right there, boys, let's just shake hands, will you now? I think we've had enough of this. You've done yourselves proud, lads. Let's just get on with the day. Let bygones be bygones. <laughs> Let's move on. I just, I just started cracking up when I heard that. I just thought it was fantastic. Who invited the pacifist to a bare-knuckle illegal boxing match? I got a fantastic mental image when you said they've got haircuts like a 90s boy band. Of <laughs> kind of sat in the corners between rounds and the music goes on in the background and there's a key change and they're both forced they to stand, stand up. up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm glad we went to the same place there (laughs) You say it best (laughs) Well Tom, it's funny actually that you should mention that Because my story today is about a slightly aggressive Irishman Excellent Yeah Well would you believe it Would you believe it I'm quite glad I managed to segue that in (laughs) What I'm talking about today Tom I'm going to talk about the Burke and Wills expedition Which you might have heard of Because it is Yeah I've heard of it but I don't know anything about it I think I've heard of it because you told me you wanted to do it Good. It's quite famous in Australia. And the reason it's quite famous in Australia is because the Australians love an idiot and they love a top bloke. And top this bloke. story is full of top blokes and idiots. It's also one of the kind of the, the original frontier stories of Australian survival. But it's very little known elsewhere in the world. So apologies to our 33 Australian listeners for both telling a story that you probably know and also for massacring your culture. What goes around comes around, Sam. Whilst I'm, whilst I'm in the process. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the Burke and Wills expedition today, Tom, which is probably the stupidest and worst organised Victorian expedition of all time. You know I love a Victorian explorer, Tom. I've done several before. <laughs> And you know why. They are the least prepared people in the world. They will go to the Antarctic with nothing but two pullovers because it might be parky out. (laughs) And this is just the most ridiculous story of ill-preparedness and stupidity I've ever heard. Enough hyperbole. Let me just tell you the story and you can decide for yourself. So I'm going to take you back to 1860, Tom. And the Burke and Wills expedition was an attempt to cross Australia from the south to the north via a 2,000 mile Ooh. inland route from Melbourne to a place called Carpentaria Bay, which is right in the north of Australia. At the time, the inland areas of Australia were almost totally unknown and pretty much completely unexplored by Europeans, which is kind of astonishing to consider in one way, because it was obviously by this time quite a well colonised country. In another way, it's pretty bloody obvious that no one had been there because there's very little there. It's fucking huge as well. It's a huge place. When you fly over it, it just goes on and on and on. It's a big, big continent. Well, I can only imagine. I, I really want to go to Australia. I've never actually been. And I imagine now I will be denied a visa. <laughs> 
But the thing is, the world was shrinking and the Southern Australian states were absolutely desperate to connect themselves to the newly arrived telegraph system, which had come from Java, connecting the land down under to the rest of the British Empire, the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And so they set up a prize fund, the South Australian government, of £2,000 which is quite a lot of money. It's about £300,000 in today's yeah. money. To plan a route and to survey a route for an overland cable from the north of Australia to the south of Australia. So in order to claim this prize and to, and to get going, in 1857, the Philosophical Institute formed an exploration committee. <laughs> if I'm going to go on an expedition with uh, yes. someone into the unknown... I don't want to go with a philosopher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I no. want someone with slightly more practical skills... Crocodile Dundee. I want Crocodile Dundee. I'm not entirely sure that they were the best people for the job. <laughs> Can we stop fucking talking? We've been talking <laughs> about existence for two days. We haven't eaten. <laughs> Why are you writing about what it means to be human when you haven't eaten in four and days? And you are burning, burning in the sun. Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, no one else seemed interested in setting up the expedition. So the Philosophical Institute got their thinking caps on, which was pretty much all they ever bloody did, and set up a committee. Unsurprisingly, among a group of incredibly argumentative people, the two leaders of the committee, who were actually very experienced bushmen and, and had quite a lot of experience of, of exploration and, and the Australian wilderness... Who were they, Sam? Who were they, Tom? Who were they? <laughs> what were they? Well, I'll tell you what they were, Tom. They were argumentative dickwads. <laughs> and despite but being the two most experienced Sam? people... What is a dickwad? <laughs> well, Tom, it's what happens when you've been fothering your half-sail for too long. These two guys just did not get on. And when it came to electing a leader for the expedition, they kept on vetoing each other. <laughs> and, so... <laughs> and, and so, unfortunately, a guy was elected called Robert O'Hara Burke. Now, Burke was an Irishman. He was bizarrely a former soldier in the Austrian army since he'd failed the British entrance exam. And he'd been an Irish and then Australian police officer. You may notice, Tom, from this description and this brief CV that he had very little experience of being outdoors. <laughs> he'd had quite a cushy life in northern Italy with the Austrian army and then had basically lived in Australian cities and Irish cities ever since. Uh, he had an adventurous spirit, but that was about as far as it went. It turns out he was also an absolutely appalling leader. And so that was the Burke part of the expedition. And then another guy was elected called William John Wills, who was appointed the chief navigator and surveyor. He had more experience of being outside than Burke. But since he wasn't in charge, it really didn't mean very much. And they got to preparing that little expedition and it started pretty well. The group realised that camels would be a great way to cross a desert and a great way to cross the Australian interior. So they imported 24 from India. Nowadays, Australia is absolutely full of yeah, camels. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. Are like, there are like a million camels in Australia. They're considered a nuisance and a pest and they're quite often culled for demolishing fences and generally making a bit of a nuisance of themselves. But at this time, there are only seven in the entire country. Because if there's one thing we've learned, Tom, it's that white settlers in Australia know how to balance out the delicate ecosystem of the country they inhabit. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's definitely the case in New Zealand as well. Yep. Australia and New Zealand are basically the living embodiment of the old poem, There Was an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly. <laughs> you bring in... <laughs> 
Oh, we've got some spiders here. We better bring in some birds to eat oh, them. Oh, shit. Oh, the birds are eating it. We better bring in some cats. Oh, the cats have eaten everything. We better bring in some dogs. Oh, the dogs have eaten everything. Let's... Oh, fuck it. What do we import now? Rabbits. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah, that is a fairly good description. That is... Bullfrogs. <laughs> Literally everything. Yeah, bu- yeah, bullfrogs are in Australia, aren't they? They're a massive problem in Australia. Yeah, yeah. huge problem. Yeah. They were imported from uh, the US, weren't they? From Florida. They were from yeah. Florida to try and get rid of some of the uh, agricultural pest insects. This was just another example, deciding to import camels from India. So 24 were imported from India, and they also bought six of the seven camels which were already in Australia from a zoo in Melbourne. What's wrong with the seventh? <laughs> it was just She's a had twat. a bad attitude. <laughs> Always kept getting a hump, Sam. Kept getting a hump. Hey. <laughs> You know what? I can't tell one camel from another, Tom. They're all a spitting image. Hey! <laughs> we'll come on to the behaviour of the camels in a minute. So they bought six of the seven camels already in Australia from a zoo I'm in Melbourne. So I don't know if I feel I sympathy not, for those or not. not. Going. I love it here in the zoo. I'm quite happy here. I do not want to follow this mad Irish bastard. You're not gonna fuck off to the ends I of the earth. Here. Well, it turns out that camel was probably the wise one as well. But anyway, sensible idea. The camels make sense on paper. But that is about as far as the sensible preparations go. I'd like to take a very brief moment, Tom, to go through some of the stupidity they presented to these guys when it came to packing for their expedition. Now, the expedition, Tom, was a total of 19 men. How many carts do you think they filled in addition to loading all of these camels up. 19 men, uh, five. Pretty close, Tom. It was six wagons, 26 camels, and 23 horses worth of gear. Wow. In all, these 19 men took 20 tonnes of equipment. Wow. Three of the wagons were loaded with nothing but two years' worth of beef jerky. Nice. <laughs> because they decided to kill the cows in advance instead of letting them walk alongside. <laughs> and then there were some of the home comforts. Now, you've been camping, Tom. You're quite an outdoorsy person. What do you take with you when you go camping? Instant super noodles. <laughs> and pretty much solely yeah. <laughs> super noodles. You might bring a little camping table to sit at, no. right? Maybe super a little noodles. fold-out chair. <laughs> no, <laughs> super noodles. <laughs> Good, a man after my own heart. The chairs and table would take up space that could be used for super noodles. Yes, well, that if only you'd been on this expedition, Tom, then you'd have probably added a little bit of sense to it because they didn't just take a camping table, Tom. They took a full oak dining table and chair set. Lovely. <laughs> they also took a very nice and very, very large oak stationery cabinet. Right. For reasons unknown, a large selection of flags and an even larger selection of fireworks. Right. A giant Chinese gong. Uh, right. <laughs> and 270 litres of rum bought by the camel handler, a guy called George James Landles, designed to keep the camels from being just on the right side of arsehole enough. <laughs> so it, it sounds as if they're basically wanting to have massive dinner parties with fireworks, yes. rum, yes, they were oak table. No, Tom, the rum was for the camels. Oh, sorry for the camels, you did mention that. You must, it yes. was for the camels. The rum was to keep the camels just drunk enough that they stopped arguing. <laughs> oh, dear. And possibly to prevent scurvy a little bit. So they had all of this shit with them. And on August the 20th, 1860, they set off from Royal Park in Melbourne with 15,000 spectators waving them on. It was a huge, huge spectacle. You know, all of the newspapers were present. It was just a huge street party. And it started badly. One of the wagons broke down before it got to the edge of the park. (laughs) And... (laughs) And by the end of the day, two more wagons had broken and they'd made it a grand total of seven miles. Nice. 
being August, it was the middle of the Australian winter and the roads were pretty bad. The, the progress they made in the first couple of months was absolutely abysmal. They were covering around 20 miles a day in the first week. And by the 12th of October, two months after setting off on their great exploratory expedition, they'd gotten as far as the town of Menindee, which was 470 miles away in two months. Now, for context, there was a regular mail coach service that did exactly the same route once a week, every week, and took a week. <laughs> <laughs> so far from exploring, they'd basically just been walking down the main road for two months whilst all the other traffic whizzed past them. <laughs> but they had achieved something in this time, Tom. A miraculous turnover of staff. Thanks to Burke being a bit of a knob and incredibly difficult to get on with, and a series of personal disagreements, in that two months, two of the senior members of the expedition had quit, 13 of the 19 had been fired... And eight new men have been hired. Oh Only four of the original crew, including Burke oh. and Wills, were still on the expedition. I can picture what sort of a leader this guy was. You disagree with me, you get fired. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Landles, the camel herder, had quit after Burke had ordered him to pour away all 270 litres of rum. Partly because it weighed so much and partly because there were repeated complaints from farmers along the way that the farmhands had been stealing it and getting absolutely plastered. So there was just a trail of drunk Australians in the wake of this expedition as it crawled along at two miles an hour for the first two months. Far be it from the Australians to drink. But anyway, at this point, there was an even greater problem. And that was that an actually very experienced explorer, a guy called John McDowell Stewart, had launched a rival expedition. Ooh. And so Burke decided that this was ridiculous. It would take them literally years to finish the expedition at this point. So he decided to hurry ahead of the heavy baggage train with a load of more lightly laden explorers and to set up camp at the halfway point, a spot called Cooper Creek, which yes. was the furthest north that any Australians had gotten so far, any European Australians. The rest would follow on slowly and then camp at the creek whilst the light party went ahead again to finish the expedition minimally packed. But Burke was an idiot, Tom. And rather than wait at the creek until autumn and the weather got cooler like a normal person, he decided to push ahead through the middle of the Australian summer. Oh. He split the group again, ordering the men at the camp to wait for three months for his return. Wills, looking at the maps and thinking, Burke, you're a twat, secretly told them to wait for four months. So Burke, Wills and a couple of other guys set off into 50 degrees Celsius in the shade temperatures. Oh. Absolutely scorching. All things considered, by all accounts, this part of the expedition actually went pretty well, though. There was water due to some recent rains, and the native Australian Aboriginal people they encountered were actually very helpful, as a lot of them were in your story. They helped direct them, they gave them bits of provisions, and guided them on their way. And within two months, so pretty much according to Wills' extended schedule, they reached the mouth of the Flinders River, which was just a few miles from the northern coastline, at which point, unfortunately, they encountered swampland and it forced them to turn back. But they were only, I think, about 20 miles from the northern oh, coast. Okay. They got really, to all intents and purposes, they made it. However, there was a problem. Wills had correctly guessed that it would take them two months to get there and two months to get back. But Burke had done the packing and had packed only three months of food. So they were going to run out a month before they got back, which they did. Things got very, very bad very quickly. Monsoon rains picked up, which made the going very slow, and the group were forced to shoot and eat their pack animals one by one, abandoning supplies as they went along the way. By the end of it, it was so desperate they were being forced to eat wildflowers and a giant python which they'd caught and shot. 
which made Burke and one of the other explorers, uh, a guy called Grey, very, very, very ill. Risky business eating things that you don't, you're not familiar with. Absolutely, yeah. Burke, who was himself very ill, decided that Grey was faking it, despite the fact that they'd both eaten exactly the same things. Burke clearly was a very, very hardy soldier and was very genuinely ill, whereas Grey was... Big wuss. Just a wimp. Yeah. And because Burke was a twat, Burke beat Grey up. He beat him so excessively that Grey never recovered Ooh. and died of dysentery a couple of days later. So he kicked the shit out of someone with dysentery? Yes. Nice. Because they both had dysentery and he thought the other guy was faking it. Right. Did you say this guy was Irish? Yes. <laughs> the final straw was that he saw Grey uh, taking a little bit more porridge than he should have been, which under the circumstances I think was probably reasonable, and then kicked the absolute shit out of him. And he was cleared by commission later on of, of having killed him, but he certainly didn't do him any favours and Grey died of dysentery on April 17th a couple of days later. The rest of the remaining three stopped for a day to bury him and arrived back at Cooper Creek four days later. So the remaining three survived and got back to the camp. To discover it had been abandoned nine hours before they arrived. Oh no. <laughs> there was some food had been buried under a mark in a tree with an apologetic note left saying that the party at the camp had waited five weeks longer than asked but that they'd started to run low on food and one of them had been quite badly injured falling off a horse. So they buried what they had left under this tree and had gone south. So what did Burke do, Tom? What's the one rule that parents say, if you get lost to your kids, what do you do? Run around aimlessly. Yes, Tom. Burke had clearly been listening because rather than stay still and wait to be rescued, yep. <laughs> he started to run around aimlessly. His plan was to travel 240 miles across the desert to reach the very aptly named Mount Hopeless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, good old Australia. So, why, so why, why didn't he just take the supplies and follow the route south and catch them up? He decided that they were so ill that they'd never be able to catch them up right. because they were crawling along at this point. And he decided that the, the route south was about twice as long. Okay as the route to this remote farmstead community. So he thought that it would be half as long and therefore twice as survivable to take the unmarked, unnamed route. Oh, uh, yeah. Rather than follow the path south and possibly come across, you know, a rescue party. And he left a note outlining his plan. But being the twat he was, he buried it back in the food supplies box and didn't remark the tree to let anyone know that he'd arrived. So unless someone went and re-dug the box up for no obvious reason whatsoever, no one would know his plan. Now, in fact, a rescue mission of two men did turn up two weeks later. But seeing that the box was buried and the tree hadn't been remarked with further instructions, they assumed Burke and Wills had never turned up. Oh, dear. In fact, they were just 30 miles away. In two weeks, they'd managed to cross just 30 miles because they were in such poor state alongside the only other survivor, a guy called John King, getting into more trouble as they went. Uh, the two camels that they had left by the time they reached... You must be John King. Yeah, that works. <laughs> <laughs> will Burke make it? If he wills it, aha! <laughs> what a Burke. Assorted other name puns. <laughs> Very well done. So yeah, the, res the rescue party had turned up and they got, ah, oh, shit, mate, there's no one here, no one's turned up. We're wallaby wallaby wasting our time. And they'd gone back down south and, and fucked off. Whilst Burke, and I'm going to get my accents in here, Burke was just wandering through the wilderness going, ah, oh, this is a lovely day. I'm feeling a bit poorly, so I think we'll just stop every 30 seconds to shit my guts out. But otherwise, I'm having a lovely time. It's such a shame none of my friends can be here. You know, will you calm down there? Why can't we go? You two, Wills and King, 
Will you just stop oh, it? What are you playing at now? Just shake hands. You've done yourselves proud. From the sounds of it, that is exactly what Burke was not like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, you daft twats. Why are you walking so fast? You're eating too much of that. You are. You've drinking me water, aren't you? I'm going to fire your arse. You'll end up in a hole in the ground just like the other <laughs> lad. Hope you're sleeping with one eye open. I said one cup of porridge out. Not one in a bed. Anyway, those two camels look like they're going a bit slowly, so I'll shoot the fecker. <laughs> uh, which is what he did. The two remaining camels, pack animals that they'd had, had gotten really ill, so he'd shot them. Which meant that the three remaining men couldn't carry nearly enough water and supplies for a 240-mile oh. journey across the desert. Because they were idiots, Tom. So, as a result, what they'd actually been doing was plodding along Cooper Creek for two weeks, not really getting anywhere closer to civilization inverted commas, and, and basically causing trouble for themselves. The local native Australians had been helping them out. Laughing hysterically, just skipping along beside them. Well, they had. Yeah, that's pretty much precisely what had been happening. They'd been kind of hanging around with them for two weeks. Basically, whenever they looked too desperate, they'd give them a bit of fish and yeah. bread in exchange for some <laughs> I sugar. I can imagine them just sort of skipping along, talking in their native language, going, oh, strange decision. They've just walked past the Goolawonga tree. <laughs> Lovely yeah. fruit in the Goolawonga tree. Oh, well. Why are they trying to eat that dead possum? <laughs> <laughs> Why are they poking it with a stick? <laughs> I can just imagine these like incredibly emaciated bearded men just kind of crawling along in tattered clothes while small children skip gaily around them <laughs> singing songs. <laughs> You're going to die in the wilderness. <laughs> Waltzing Matilda. Waltzing Matilda. Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> You'd never guess what they did yesterday. They got this bloody great python and decided to eat that. Woo! Down in one they did, like a noodle. It was like Lady in the Tramp. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> oh, that's a really funny mental image, actually. Just two guys, just Lady in the Tramp and a six-foot <laughs> python. <laughs> a massive python. <laughs> How romantic. So anyway, these two guys spent two weeks bimbling around Cooper Creek, occasionally being fed by the locals <laughs> with fish and bread when they looked like they were particularly desperate. And eventually decided this was pointless. They turned around and went back to their camp. And Burke wrote a, a very bitter last diary entry, which he buried along with everything else, saying, you assholes, you've left us to die. At some point very shortly after this, whilst Wills wasn't looking, Burke, being the twat he was, decided to shoot at the Aboriginals, who promptly ran away and stopped feeding them. <laughs> and, and so out of sheer annoyance, he shot their only source of food. <laughs> And so within a month, both Burke and Wills died on or around June the 28th, 1861. Wills first and Burke shortly afterwards. King stayed with Burke's body for two days before setting off to find another nearby Aboriginal camp who took him in and fed him for two months until a rescue expedition sent out from Melbourne finally found him and took him home. All we had to do was ask for help, eh, Sam? And what did Burke do? Being the Burke he Shot was... At him. He what shot at them. What a dick. <laughs> he shot at them several weeks after they'd started giving them food. There were actually a total of six rescue expeditions sent out via land and sea to try and find Burke and Wills. When they, it turned out they hadn't been heard from in six months, there was an absolute media furore. And the government basically were forced into action and forced to send out a load of different expeditions to try and rescue them. Some went to the north via ship and came down south and some set off from Melbourne and headed north. And actually, between these six expeditions, two of them successfully made the crossing. Yes, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. That's exactly where <laughs> I thought you were going. Yeah. One from south to north, uh, which again got caught in the swamplands and ended up turning eastwards and heading towards the Queensland coast. And another party who sailed to the Gulf of Carpentia 
and then went from north to south and actually took home the £2,000 prize. Get in. And the tribe that had rescued King, who were known as, I'm going to pronounce this wrong and I do apologise, the Yandruanda tribe, they were actually given commemorative breastplates as a special gift by the uh, Victorian government for their services in humanity and helping others in need. So there we go, a rare act of generosity by the, by the Australian government towards an Australian Aboriginal people. I just love the fact yeah. that they're going through, this Irishman and his little gang are going through what seems to be inhospitable land and there is an Aboriginal tribe living perfectly happily. Yeah. All they've got to do is ask. And then somehow they all manage to die of dysentery and starvation. Absolutely, they just <laughs> fucked it up completely when there's a tribe living there. It can't be that bad. Yeah. No, and from all accounts, actually, most of the terrain they were passing through wasn't that bad. Anyway, Burke and Wills' bodies were recovered in 1862 and buried with ceremonial honours in Melbourne, and 40,000 people lined the procession route. It was a huge, huge state funeral they were given. For being wankers, useless wankers. Bellends, yeah. Well, I mean, to be, to be fair, it was more Burke's fault than Wills'. Yeah, that's true. It has to be said, though, the expedition wasn't a complete waste. It was a disaster, but it had started to map the in-Australian territories and established that there weren't any great lakes or inland seas in Australia, which people had postulated for decades that there might be. And somewhat ironically, the rescue operations had mapped huge swathes of inland Australia while searching for these guys. And so from it grew several slightly more positive outcomes, but generally it was an absolute fucking disaster from start to finish. And it's one of my favourite stories of exploration, and I love Excellent. it. Excellent. Very, very <laughs> good. I really enjoyed that. But what happened to the camel that stayed behind? The one camel that stayed behind died smug. <laughs> <laughs> smug and bitter. In a big pen all on its own. Eating the food of eight camels. Yep. Fascinating, Sam. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I, th- I thought so. I'm glad I finally got a chance to tell this story. And yours was too, Tom. I'm glad we've explored Australia and all of its horrors. <laughs> <laughs> lovely country, lovely people. Yes. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Apologies if you are Australian. I Drink yourself into oblivion. Do what you need to do. Get over it. <laughs> We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you have, please do subscribe to us, leave us a review, write us a friendly comment on your podcast app of choice. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We occasionally shitpost history memes so you can go and find out what we're up to there. Anything else to add, Tom? No, that's about it, I think, Sam. I was busy doing doodles again, sorry. Marvellous. Oh, what are you doodling this time, Tom? Oh, it's very abstract. (laughs) Well, Tom, I think we should probably stop doodling for a second to decide on a topic for next week. I had an idea. Oh, go on. Now, we seem to have discussed Australian topics on a number of occasions. We have. But I don't think we've discussed much in uh, America. America? So I'm wondering whether or not the theme for next week is God bless USV. Fuck yeah. God bless America. I'm absolutely willing to give that a go, yes. I I should mention now, for the purposes of marketing and SEO, our largest audience group now is in America. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) So let's do, next week, How Wonderful America Is. We love America. We love the US of A. Yes, Uh, let's do America next week. Uh, Accents would be interesting. (laughs) Howdy, y'all. I'm from New York. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm from Cowboy Town. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, this is going to be awful and brilliant in equal measure. So, howdy next week to our American compatriots. We're coming to town. And there's only room for one comedy history podcast in this town. Yeah, beautiful. Get the freedom fries on. 
We'll be in town next week. Y'all stay safe now. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs>